0: Welcome to part two of what is happening in Colombia, part of the art salon. Uh, If you have not heard the introduction, please go to part one uh, to get a little bit of context of what's going on, Uh, although I doubt you made it to part two without listening to part one. Before continuing, I would like to read the final words of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's magnum opus, A 100 Years of Solitude. Because I think it really settles down with what you will notice is a very kind of Shakespearean tragedy that is Columbia. The the real tragedy about this is that it's not poetic. Um, These are real people's lives and a lot of suffering. So before starting, I'll, I'll read you the final words from 100 Years of Solitude. Before reaching the final line, however, he had already understood that he would never leave that room. For it was foreseen that the city of mirrors, or mirages, would be wiped out by the wind and exiled from the memory of men at the precise moment when Aureliano Babilonia would finish deciphering the parchments, and that everything on them was unrepeatable since time immemorial and forevermore, because races condemned to 100 years of solitude did not have a second opportunity on earth. And with that, I leave you with part two about the background of what's going on in Colombia which I decided to entitle Frogs in Boiling Water. Enjoy. So one of the inceptions of the huge violence in Colombia was the the killing of a person that was seen as the outside of this. uh, Gaitan. He was kind of like our would-be Perón, so like the socialist who was going to be president. We never know, but he got murdered. And since then, we've lived in this idea that because he got killed, it would never be the same. So again, we're we're talking about a country that can't recognize what he what he represented but just the man himself. So that's kind of what I want to talk about because it leads us to why Uribe is the person he is. It's not what he represented, it's who he is. So let, let let's go from there kind of a brief history. So we have these super mega powerful high class people that have dominated Colombia in 1940, they see kind of a threat to that. And it is rumored that the Conservative Party has that candidate killed, or not the Conservative Party, but the Conservatives have this guy killed. And huge riots almost destroys the country, which leads to a period where the Conservative and the Liberal Party kind of agree to switch off power to kind of pacify the country. With several years of lots of violence. With several years of, and and a semi-dictatorship. We should say that Colombia has never had like a full dictatorship for real. But uh, we have had a form of dictatorial power in the sense that two parties dominated all politics and excluded anyone that didn't want to be part of those two parties. Uh, so let's talk not so much about what happened on, uh, in 1948, but like, let's talk about that dynamic. So uh, I'm more interested in what is called the Frente Nacional, that, that period of conservatives and liberals switching power with complete exclusion of these new ideas that were hitting uh the market in the in in the rest of the world at around the 1960s to 70s i don't know if anyone has any thoughts about that and and why it leads to these to this i'm just thinking about like tying it all to what the moment we're living in colombia that's an interesting topic
1: i i guess like if i could start somewhere i i think like for many years colombia was managed like somebody's private farm not as a country yeah so it's like, OK, many of these people that managed the country studied abroad, had the opportunity to actually educate themselves in very good places. But I, I think they never actually understood what Colombia was, the concept of Colombia. And the concept of Colombia is actually a very complicated concept because of what you were talking about of Spain, of our uh, Hispanic roots, of our understanding of the country, of our geography. It's all very complex. And I think these people, the elites, as we they call them, never really understood the country, never even wanted to
2: uh,
0: and I and think... the one, and the ones they did also didn't understand how hard it would be to make this the United States. like yeah. even if you see some of the like most illustrated of our founding fathers, I mean, Nariño or Caldas or even some of Bolivar's speeches, and Santander was a very interesting guy. They were trying so hard to make this a country that they could not actually have. We have too many issues to make it the type of country that works that way. And actually, Colombia is born kind of as a failed state. Like it's, <laughs> it's born like that, like in the sense that like we had
1: our independence and we didn't even manage to get ourselves together for like, I don't know, like 15 years. And then they started to completely disintegrate. At the end, Colombians, Venezuelans, Ecuador, Ecuadorians, we are exactly the same people, say, nation, but it's different countries. And it makes it very complex and but but my point with uh, the this like hierarchical obsessiveness that we have with people, like we love hierarchies. not, not only Colombians, but lat, lat, Latinos in general, we love hierarchical structures. that's something that we cannot not half. And we love it. And, and I the think the Spanish it, love it. And the Spanish love it because it's also very Roman. No? It's also very like Latin. And by the way, same.
0: it's also very fake in Spain. That's actually why, one of the nicest things about it. like When you think about like, everyone in Spain cl- claimed to be uh, what we call Hidalgos, claim to be the yeah. like Lord. But they weren't. And, and then when they came to Latin America, they all claimed to be that. We love this. We love this and it's part of our hierarchy. And we also love it from our indigenous past because it was an imperial past. In most yeah. of latin america so anyway keep going so
1: i don't know I, I think there's also an interesting connection with history regarding what was happening in europe in the sense of like after the the world war the, the war the first war you have like this creation of the like figures in all europe that are like dominating politics and dominating leadership it happens with Mussolini, it happens with Franco, it happens with Hitler, it happens with many people, with many leaders in, 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 in Europe. And you have the example of Lauriano Gomez that it's a very interesting case in Colombia. The guy was ambassador for Italy in Mussolini's period. And you watch and you hear the speeches of Laureano Gomez and it's just a complete copy of Benito Mussolini. Not ideologically, because many people are constantly saying like uh, Laureano Gomez was like a, a fascist. and I don't honestly think so, but he did copy many things that he saw abroad. And I think that concept of let's copy something that we see in another place is constant in Colombia's history. Like we to, today. To, uh, to, to today. Totally. Today, we are more like focused on copying the US than the European model, but it's constant. It's constantly you have like, okay, let's copy this type of leadership and let's try to bring it here. And in that sense, in the 1930s, Colombia was a very poor country. And it, I, I think it's important to talk about it because there was a lot of land owned by very few people and the peasants were extremely poor. Colombia was a very closed economy, very, very closed economy. Uh, we were just going out of many civil wars that we had through the 1980s, like 800s. That we had, like, from our independence years. to that point, basically. Yeah, from our independence to that point, we had many civil wars. We lost Panama, we lost territory in the Amazon, we lost a lot of things. And it was like we were not really getting the grips on the country, in my opinion. Um, so then you have this, like, saviors like Laudiana Gomez or like uh, um, Gaitan which was, was, by the way, one of the worst majors of Bogota. He did horribly as a major of Bogota, and people just don't talk about it because he just was, like, the liberal guy. And so
0: it's... let me explain. Like, Gaitan was a version of Bernie Sanders who was young, mm-hmm. super popular. super. Pop- <laughs> he probably would have been president of Colombia. and But, again, not a great administrator, uh, not necessarily a good lawyer, to be to be honest. But he was a very important political figure. Uh, and unfortunately the democratic process was not allowed to continue with him because he was murdered. And he did represent uh, a complete diversion from this elite people that had governed the country up until that point. So anyway, eh, Mocho, sorry for interrupting.
1: No, and that that's exactly the point. It's like this populist, because he's the definition of a populist, him and actually Laureano Gomez are the definitions of populist in the sense of, They're telling the people, that's where we need to go. This is going to solve the country. Like leaders, uh, political leaders in South America are never able to say, like, this may work. No, they're not able to say that. They're just saying, like, this will work 100%. Trust me, because I am your savior. Yeah so you have this type of messianic figures that are trying to save the poor people of uh, colombia and uh, if you don't vote for them if you don't support them then the country is going to go to hell which by the way has been in hell for the past like 100 or more years so at the end like you have this very constant figures of like saviors in colombian politics uh, starting from that time i think 1920s um after the the civil wars you have a lot of political figures that became like heroes starting from one of the of the candidates that was killed by axes in the in the congress of colombia uh, after in the beginning of that thing until today there's a lot of we have the savior that is going to come and save colombia and then something happens and we have violence and that's like a repeating story and then what happens in the 1980s just like going a little bit uh, closer is you have the drug component adding to the bombshell of Colombia. We'll so get, to that. Have... We'll get yeah. to that. We'll
0: get to that. Huge... But let's talk... Uh, uh, any other comments, Jose, about like uh, Colombia's obsession? And it's not just Colombia. I think that it's a very European obsession. America is... A... This is something that Americans need to understand. America is a very unique thing in world history from 1776 to about 1900. Like... The only working democracy up until that point, I mean, up until the First World War, monarchy was the leading form of government. Uh, the democracies in Latin America, you could consider them failed up until like about 1970. So um, America is a unique model.
2: I'll add something else, which is, uh, so. so there's two, broadly speaking, two forms of democracy in the world that exist. There's the parliamentary kind, which is more popular in Europe, and there's the presidential kind, which exists in the U.S. and a lot of Latin America. The U.S. is the only presidential democracy that has never, so far at least, gone into uh, an authoritarian uh, system. Um,
0: They've also had the same constitution, not from their inception, but pretty much. Pretty
2: much. The Articles of Confederation lasted maybe a little bit over.
1: But with a huge difference in, in a federal system that we don't have.
2: Oh, and, and, and more than a federal system, a uh, kind of a respect for the rule of law, and and yes, and 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 for independent judicial systems, yes. judicial review that I think is lacking in a lot of other places.
0: Yes, I don't want to go too far into detail, but the easiest way to understand this is in most of Latin America, uh, we remember history from president to president and the constitutions that they brought in. So, like for example, let's talk about Colombia. Bolívar, who was who had like an idea of Colombia that would be like the United States, that was his idea. It's like he saw that Colossus up north and he said we will never compete with them unless we stay in a confederation that is large enough. His idea was that each, like Ecuador would be a state, Colombia would be a state, Venezuela would be a state, but we would all be one country. Then you have Santander, who tried to be a federalist, but ended up dividing all these countries into separate countries. The the point is, we don't even remember it as a debate between central power or federal power. We remember it as Bolívar or Santander. And that's the true for every president that follows. So whereas you have somebody in the United States, you have George Washington, succeeded by his own party, Adams, who hated Jefferson at that point, but Jefferson doesn't try to change the Constitution just because Adams and, and Washington set it up. Likewise, like by, by the time John Quincy comes in as the fifth president, fifth, sixth, fifth president, hey, something like that. whatever it is, he's not trying to change everything that everyone else did before them. There's a huge respect for the gov- the institution is larger than the man, which is the opposite in Latin America in general. Like in Latin America, the man is larger than the institution. So that that's kind of what I wanted to make clear uh, about our history. Jose, do you have anything else to say about that? No. Okay, so brief history from there, from Gaitan, who Mauricio was talking about, like this populist leader. He gets murdered. We go into what is called the Bogotazo, which is in 1948. They basically the mass riots destroy every major city in Bogota. There's somewhat of a glorification of what these cities used to look like. We we used to call Bogota the Athens of South America. I don't know if that is so true, but it used to be a, a relatively peaceful democracy. And from that point on, we get into this like bipartisan violence, and people start killing each other because you're a liberal and I'm a conservative there's really it's like it's like soccer but with machetes so uh...
1: but you also need to add the 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 thing that I was talking about land owning I think that's important in the sense that usually conservatives were the ones that were having huge let's say shares in in land in Colombia and liberals not not all of them of course but there was a huge concentration of Power in land and landowning in Colombia that we still haven't taken. Yes. And
2: now that I'm going to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, but this, this whole conflict about land in 2021, which is still a big discussion in policy circles, seems crazy to me in the 21st century.
0: Yes. So let's, I, I want to get into that, Jose, because that's, I, that was going to be my next thing. So let's talk about for a second that bipartisan violence. Here's how I've always thought about it liberals in Colombia have been akin to the American dreamers, except that like, if you look at conservative Americans in the 1700s, 1800s versus liberal Americans, they both believed in a vision of state. They just believed that you should get to it in different ways. In Latin America, you have conservatives who kind of want to establish a version of the uh, imperial power, but in, in Latin America versus liberals who want a modern state a la the United States. But these people are often self-sacrificing. This is also something that bothers me about the current protests. You're talking about uh, people with tremendous power, tremendous amounts of land, tremendous amounts of money that said, I'm willing to sacrifice my station in life for a different type of state. So you have like Alberto Lleras Camargo, Alberto Lleras Restrepo. you have... Uh, you have all these people that come from super traditional colombian families but they're saying dude we can't keep this up like i love owning massive amounts of land but we just can't do this anymore like there's people starving versus a, a a conservative face that like was like we're not giving any of it up so that's very different also from north america i'll say it that way uh so going into this Huge bipartisan violence lead, uh, that that gets controlled by a hyper centralized state in Lauriano Gomez, like you men- mentioned, um, who is seen as a s- semi dictator in some ways,
1: like the monster. Like he's actually called the monster, which I think it's a little bit unfair. Honestly, I, I I don't like him as a as a as a figure. Just to make sure that maybe people will not sacrifice me later. But
0: um,
1: <laughs> but he, I I think people just like have this myth about this like. Hitler type of Colombian which I don't really think he was but he he really did participate in this
0: initial polarized Colombia and
1: he's a huge uh, figure in this initiation of let's polarize the country
0: also if i may say he saved us from what was happening around the rest of latin america which is he conserved a semi democracy when the rest of latin america became essentially a repeat of europe we don't see it that way because america was the one that was the biggest player in this but by 1970 the rest of latin america pretty much had a right-wing dictator at the helm military right-wing dictator. military right-wing dictator we had a right-wing asshole but not a dictator yeah.
1: which gave votes uh, vote to women which brought television to colombia which did a lot of uh, infrastructure I, I, he's a very interesting character actually but yeah yeah
0: so uh, not to get too into it, but basically that leads into a very brief dictatorship, which was, I mean, this dictator was so pathetic that when his bosses called and said, okay, we're going to reinstate democracy, he, he left right away. You know, it wasn't really a dictatorship, but it was kind of like a way to establish uh, a balance of powers. His name was Gustavo Rojas Pinilla, and he did have something that is similar to something that's about to be invoked, so we should bring it up, which yeah. should, uh, go for it, Mojo. No, and I think it's actually very interesting to mention the
1: military right now. And I think we'll go later a little bit deeper on it. But Colombia somehow managed, with all the shit show that was happening in our history, to have, in a way, independent military powers. And the military, really, in a way, were very respectful of democracy in Colombia for many years. And they actually never gave an opinion or participated. Just with that, like, let's say, exception of of this military guy coming in and trying to fix things. Uh, But like he gave power reasonably easy. It was not like, oh, it it was not super violent at that time. Um, But I think the military right now, compared to that time, is having a highly
0: political let's say, participation, which yes.
1: I find
0: dangerous. Very... And, I, and I can explain why, but let's keep going for now. Yeah. So that leads to liberals and conservatives who have put this man in power, Gustavo Rospinilla, who had instated something called, what is it, what was it? The Estado de Sitio. He had, yeah. he had basically instated this thing where it's similar to something that's trying to be invoked right now by the current president, but it was basically giving complete authority to the central government. And you could be Stopped on the street, taken to police barracks without any uh, reason, and then investigated there. So this is where the disappearance history starts happening in Colombia, where the military starts disappearing people, which is very dictatorial. And this would continue and it still continues. So uh, there we hit something called the National Front, Frente Nacional, where basically uh, these liberal and conservatives got together, very prominent politicians... Uh, The founder of the uh, Organization of American States, uh, Alberto Lleras Camargo. I would say the liberals in this proposition were a lot better than the conservatives. I think everyone would agree. Uh, Alberto Lleras started the first kind of like uh, social proposals in Colombia, the first projects which still exist, Barrio Kennedy in Bogotá, uh, stuff like that. But the problem here, and this is where this moment in history is very important. It was a completely... It was a fake democracy. You could either vote conservative or liberal. But it, there nobody else could get involved. If you... And this is not like in America where there has always been this bipartisan, bipartisan thing where, like, it's accepted that either a Republican or a Democrat will win. No. In Colombia, like, it's an open election. Anyone should be able to participate, but for this period of time, not allowed. So what did this... Ha- what, what led... Uh, happening here is basically that because it's the 1960s and 70s, communism was on the rise in Latin America, social projects were on the rise in Latin America, dictatorships were on the rise in Latin America, and what led led to this is that uh, this mega, mega left-wing people and half-left-wing people and socialist people tried to get into government. They couldn't get into government, so by lack of uh, government participation, we got the formation of revolutionary revolutionary guerrilla forces which have kind of been the central component of Colombian politics since that point. So I don't know if anyone wants to talk about the creation of FARC, LN, M19
1: Well, it's kind of part of the the Cold War environment So you have the
0: enemy, which is the
1: commies, and capitalism trying to save the world basically. And then Colombia as part of the system of the U.S. because we have always been like a huge ally for the U.S. except when they took Panama from us I guess but we have been always
0: been like their like baby
1: brother very
0: baby. Well partially (laughs) because it's like Israel we have had the self-determination to not accept anything that smells of socialism. Exactly
1: so at the end you have a lot of groups because people forget about uh, people always talk about FARC and ELN which are the main ones uh but there were like in a moment there were like 20 guerrilla groups being created once being like created in in, in the image of mao others created the image of stalin. fidel others in the stalin uh, kind of uh, flow of communism so you have a lot of groups going on there and you even have an indigenous communist guerrilla group that was Quintin lame which people really don't remember that much There was also an indigenous uh, guerrilla group. Um, So there was a lot of groups being created in that time. But I think you you just uh, summarized it perfectly. And it's the lack of political opportunities. And that's one of the, in my opinion, one of the main issues Colombia has is like, it has been exercising a huge political violence for a lot of years. And many of us don't even realize it.
2: Any comments about that, Jose? I mean, I, I think that's a good summary.
0: So uh, the ones that did survive, two specific ones would be ELN, the uh, Army of National Liberation, Ejército de Liberación Nacional, and FARC, eh, Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia. FARC, the biggest and most powerful, was disarmed. Huge success, I think, but we'll talk about that a little bit later, in 2014. And then the other, the, those two, were marxist they were largely funded up until 1981 by the soviet union uh mostly they that's where they got their funding that's where they got their weapons the soviet union then you had m19 it was a much more um student-based <laughs> intellectual movement that went really wrong it's essentially how i see it uh but they did funny things they stole the the sword of bolivar uh, and, and they, they dug a tunnel and stole the weapons from the army, they were jokesters that turned into really dangerous people. That's kind of how I've always seen them. Uh, but their leader, like their leaders who are all dead, the real leaders, and this is also something Colombians don't really understand, their real leaders that were kind of badasses and super well-prepared got murdered. And yeah. not during the war, they got murdered after the fact. And- after the peace treaty, yes. yes. And uh, we'll get into that, but out of M19, and this is a figure that will come back later, came a man called Gustavo Petro, who is one of the leading candidate choices right now. We'll talk about him later. I don't see him necessarily in the way other people see him, but we'll get back to him. I don't know if there's any additional comment just in the historical context.
1: Just before that, I think, just to clarify, Colombia became a country that is like completely and absolutely afraid of anything that smells left. Yes. Anything. So if you mention socialism, if you mention left-wing, if you mention even communism, people, and especially older people in Colombia, are
0: really afraid of that. And that's something we do share with America. We do share that with the United States.
2: I think you need to add a little bit of nuance for that, because there have been left-wing mayors in Bogota for almost 20 years now. So, yeah, I think the urban working class has has, change, has not adhered to that for a while now. but I mean, they're yeah. not the majority, but they, they're, they're a sizable fraction in, in some major urban areas. Yes, yeah. and, and
0: 1991 has a lot to do with that, which we're about to get to. I just want to give like a summary of the history here. Now. Here is where it all gets really iffy. The Soviet Union falls in 1989 is the Berlin Wall. 1991 is the Soviet Union. At any rate, by the mid-80s, the Soviet Union has no money to fund these ridiculous communist explorations in Latin America. By the 1980s, a man called Pablo Escobar pops up in Colombia, which is very, everyone will know who he is. Pablo Escobar is much more fundamental than people think. He's not just... Yes, he has his own Netflix, multiple Netflix. But he he's much more important than people give him credit. He wasn't just the drug dealer. This is the man who brought cocaine to Colombia. Like, Colombia had always been kind of a trafficking spot where cocaine would be made, but not a place where cocaine would be planted, like the coca leaf. Pablo Escobar was the full package as far as business. This dude was the first to think, I can make, I can grow it, I can produce it, and I can bring it into the United States. And nobody was prepared for this fucker. And what happened? He flooded the United States with cocaine. There was a huge demand. And this guy created a whole new level of wealth in Colombia that had not been seen until this point. He would shame anyone that would consider themselves rich in Colombia up until this point. Some man who was making a million dollars a day. He turned Medellin, which was like a Random little city, like with normal rich people, into like this place of excess. This is a guy who had a private plane before the greatest industrialist in Colombia had a plane. The guy who had massive estates, all this shit, and it created uh two things: a drug economy that didn't exist in Colombia really up until that point. It used to exist in Peru, but not to that level. You also need to mix this with the 1980s cocaine boom, um, and Pablo Escobar then had you know, the the Medellin cartel and then the Cali cartel. We won't get into the specifics of all that, but basically just to say this guy created a whole new economy and a whole way to, to make money. Now, the first people to tap into this way of making money that were part of the conflict we're talking about politically were the paramilitary forces. So paramilitary forces were forces created by local people who were trying to defend themselves against these, like, communist guerrillas initially. Now, once they started getting drug money, these people started being a second army, and the Colombian army saw them as an ally. Now, entrenched in all of this is the links between our former president Alvaro Uribe with paramilitary groups and also with the Medellin cartel. He was the one that signed uh, the licenses for his airplanes and helicopters and all of that shit. There's clearly a lot of history there, but more specifically with the paramilitary groups, which he personally funded. It's not clear. his link to uh, narco stuff, but it is pretty evident that there is some. So, eh, Maucho, I don't know if you want to talk about anything there.
1: Just maybe to to explain better with what you were explaining before was, like, we have this left-wing guerrilla groups that are funded by the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. and Cuba, you know, in a sense. And then you have, like, private armies being created in rural areas of Colombia to Let's say defend themselves against these bandoliers, these like bad guys, but which were like honestly speaking, very small at that time. Like even if they were funded by the Soviet Union, even if they were like almost completely irrelevant.
0: But we should make clear also that it's partially because the army we're talking about a country very different from what we know now. It was a country that could not send an army to deal with this problem because the budget was too small. Our army was garbage. It's Well, but we'll get into because it links into the protest why the police is so armed. So uh, basically... And and then I think what it's really relevant there is
1: like the funding of this uh, private, let's see, uh, soldiers, like uh, defense, uh, private defense uh, armies. Paramilitary groups, yeah. Paramilitary... Uh, Yeah, yeah. Paramilitary groups funded by this like landowners that had a lot of money but then what happened was with with paulo Escobar coming in there was another income coming in the country that was like what you were saying that drug money flooded completely the country so now you have another alternative of funding your war be it i want this to be a marxist leninist country or i need to defend my territory and drug money started funding both sides. And I, and I think that's important. Like, yes. And can I, can I make a political economy standpoint
2: here? Look, if, if we agree that the fundamental characteristic of the state is they have the monopoly on the use of violence and they're in charge of maintaining law and order, this is absent for, I mean, it's been absent historically, but, it, but I think in this period it becomes heightened because there are these left-wing Armed forces that are arguably terrorizing rural areas. And so the right wing uh, paramilitary armed forces rise up. That is, I mean, that is a very clear breakdown of institutional of the institutional framework. And and one in which I mean I mean the, the kind of a, the, the political and the security situation breaks down, but also the to a large extent the incentives to do any economic activity that is productive in creates safe returns on investment. Completely breaks down. So...
0: And it really helped collapse uh, the little things that Colombia had going because international business fled and national businessmen did not have enough money to start those international enterprises at the time. And, and it's also important to highlight, and, and I think it is, that many also multinationals,
1: especially banana company and oil company. Yeah, and coca also, let's say, paid these private armies to defend their companies and, in, in some areas of Colombia, and that's
0: actually very investigated, and and it's a huge issue. Also. Yes, so especially Chiquita, which is United Fruit Company. The brands, uh, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, Let's go back to, again, 1980s. There's a crisis in these left-wing militias because they've lost their funding from the Soviet Union. At the same time, the paramilitary groups start supplying. At this time, let's make it clear, ELN and FARC are very small. And the one that's gaining in popularity and in in wealth is M19. M19, which was, again, more politically motivated and not so Marxist. It was just like about uh, inclusion in voting. But they did get progressively more violent. Now, at this point, they start fucking with the Medellin cartel's family because they see them as a target to get money. Now, what this means is that it's the first alliance of cocaine economy with a military economy. So the paramilitary groups get hired essentially and create an alliance with. The drug cartels. So for the first time, now you have an imbalance in power militaristically, because for the first time, this paramilitary group has the money of a national army funded by the cocaine war. And now they are really a force to reckon with against these socialist militias. And. At the same time, M-19 ends up taking some money, whatever. But now we hit 1991, and M-19, because they are more politically motivated, agree to sit down, not after burning our Supreme Court, but they agreed to sit down with uh, the government and negotiate a peace treaty. Now, they disarm, blah, blah, blah. And we see the first glimmer of hope because, again, at this point, ELN and FARC, not super powerful. So we see the, the first glimmer of hope in Colombia that we might have a modern country. In 1991, there's a huge wave of protests. They're called the La, La Septima Papeleta, the Seventh uh, Paper. Ballot. I don't know what the... Pallot, ballot. ballot. And what they were saying is, we are going to protest until we get a new constitution. We had been working on a constitution from 1886 that was pretty conservative. So they wanted a modern constitution. By conservative,
2: what Nicolas means is, is that it was so, power was so centralized that the president of the country would appoint governors of all of the provinces and, and originally even the mayors of every single municipality in the country. So,
0: and the church was not separated from the state entirely.
2: I'd bad. Mean, I, I, I think the, the, the centralization of power was the, was the <laughs> Insane. bigger issue.
0: Insane. Sure. See, so in 1981, part of the reason M19 says we're not going to keep at this war is because we've been approved this constitutional right in the mi- and in the mix are these giant protests asking for that constitutional thing. It is considered a huge success because it's the first kind of historic peaceful protesting in Colombia that leads to something real which is a goal that they had from the beginning. We want a new constitution that is more inclusive and also not so centralized. They succeeded. Partially M19 demobilized or left their weapons in order to achieve this goal. They negotiated, we're talking about some of the most brilliant minds at the time in 1981, from very different places. You had the most conservative assholes, the oldest people that had governed the country forever, meeting with these former guerrilla people that they had been persecuting just two years prior. And you also have students in the mix, and they actually write a pretty decent constitution. So the, here we are in 1991. Meanwhile, we're still waging a horrendous war with um, particularly the million cartel and Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar, in the process, by the way, killed five of our people who were in the constitutional uh, um, convention. So, you know, Netflix. he he killed the best of them, all of them. Six presidential candidates in one cycle were killed by Pablo Escobar. So this is kind of why this whole, like, Netflix glorification of Pablo Escobar is insane. Here's a dude that that is uh, kind of directly responsible for actually what we're living now in a way that will show. So uh, basically we're still waging the drug war, but we got a modern constitution by 1991. Uh, Now, fast forward. uh, Well, we need to backtrack a tiny bit. Ronald Reagan gets elected president in the 1980s. Uh, This also has a huge part to play in uh, the Pablo Escobar conflict that we're talking about. So he basically uh, tells Colombia, I'm going to fund the shit out of your armed forces and your police. And you're going to take care of this problem. Now, meanwhile, in the United States of America, Ronald Reagan did all shit. Uh, our media at the time was very fantastic in Colombia. We knew exactly who Pablo Escobar was. We knew exactly who the leaders of the cartels were. In, in North America, we don't know shit about who runs the drug trade. Uh, but th- all this to say, Ronald Reagan floods our institutionals, uh, institutions with money specifically for the armed forces. So that's an important point to make for what we're living today. Uh, There's Archibald. two speeches parallel.
1: I'm sorry if I'm a little bit repetitive, but it's like the drug war. The, the drug war like, it's a very huge emphasis in this thing, but also the war against communism, mm-hmm. which is super big. And it's a, a, a huge topic that will influence a lot the way that Colombians actually live politics. In, yes. In-
0: And this will coincide in 19... This is the only reason I bring up Ronald Reagan is because it coincides in about 1993. uh, George Bush Sr. is president. Uh, Pablo Escobar's reign comes to an end. He's the undisputed king of cocaine. I mean, that's another thing that people don't understand. Like, this man and the Cali cartel ran all the drug operations in Colombia. All of them. So, he finally gets taken down, which creates a decentralization of the drug war. Now... By 1993, we're talking about the Soviet Union has fallen, and the United States is actually in talks with Yeltsin. Uh, Like, the idea that communism is still a problem is out, right? But what happens? The vacuum left by M-19 and Pablo Escobar opens a window for FARC and ELN, so the two communist guerrillas, to take over essentially 60 to 70% of the drug uh, operations in Colombia. So now, what used to be a two-fold problem that Mauricio just said, we have like a war with communism and a war with uh, uh, drugs turns into one giant, really messed- up drug, which we call the narco--communist uh, war, whatever you want to call it, uh, narco-terrorism, right? And we uh, have both.: We, we have both in the 2000s. but OK. Yes. So but but by 1993, we're in this mess, which is that we now not only have these like drug lords who are would be businessmen with guns who are creating a lot of havoc in the cities, but not so much havoc in the country, in the countryside. They get the new people in town are the paramilitaries who are already taking all this drug money, who take over part of Pablo Escobar's business and then the two communist guerrillas who start doing the same fucking thing. So now we have these major drug dealers who are now armed to the teeth with an army. Just just uh,
1: another like thing there and it's like when Pablo Escobar dies in 1993, you have thousands of guys that don't have a job anymore basically. So what happens, the paramilitary groups kind of do this national assembly of paramilitary groups. It's, it's even funny to think about it, but it's like, okay, let's get together. Let's talk about drugs. Let's talk about right-wing things. Let's talk about fascism. I don't know what the fuck what they were talking about. And they created this national paramilitary group called Autodefensas Unidas de Colombia. And it's basically getting all of the things of Cartel Medellin, of these paramilitary groups together and joining in a big, united force against communism and farc um and that's a mess because it's now you have a huge guerrilla group left-wing guerrilla group farc and ELN, against a huge huge very powerful and surprisingly protected paramilitary group yes. and when i say surprisingly protected is like what i that's what i was doing politically so yeah exactly politically and also socially speaking yes because I remember like even me, when I was little, I was like, yeah, I prefer paramilitary groups than guerrilla groups. Well, we are all like, kind of taught that, yes.
0: Yeah, Because it's
1: like, they're the good guys. Because the enemy of the enemy
0: is my yeah. friend. Exactly. They're armed yeah. as fuck. They're killing people with chainsaws, yes. but they're the good guys. So now, like, I, 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 one reason to bring up Pablo Escobar, there's no reason to bring him up except for uh, one thing that we do need to talk about. So I want to go back to why this matters for the protest. It's not just a brief history of Colombia. Maucho, it's something you mentioned. mentioned. Uh, at the time, we had two wars with Pablo Escobar and the, the communist guerrillas. The army dealt with the communist guerrillas. The police dealt with the drug war. Now, the police cannot deal with the drug war with rubber bullets and tasers. So the police had been armed to the teeth with military weapons trained like the military and on top of that they had funding from the united states to be trained like the military add to this the pol- yeah, sorry jose the police is part of the ministry of defense exactly which is
2: just highly unusual
0: but- yes but let's talk I, that that actually comes a little bit like in 1993 four. but like the the point is like the police had been militarized and for good reason. I mean, we should accept that there, there was a crisis in our cities that could not be solved with a dude with a, with a nightstick. And um, the other thing I, w- I want to mention about that is by 1964, and this is something that's also going to play into what's happening right now. So, Maucho, you mentioned that before that, by 1940, our military forces were very defensive of the Constitution and of the state of law. By 1964, uh, Washington, D.C. had created something called the School of the Americas. The School of the Americas no longer is called the School of the Americas. It's called the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation. This is an indoctrination school that was founded, and I'm not making this up. This was founded by the type of documents that were created to indoctrinate the SS in Nazi Germany. So when they free Germany, they find all these documents on how you indoctrinate the SS. Americans say, well, this isn't great, but it would work really great if instead of Jew, we exchange that for communist. So they start training, not their own people. They don't start training their own fucking military this way, but they start training the military of allied countries like Colombia. We're talking about top ranks. We're not talking about random soldiers. They start training our officials at the institute of the Americas. so if you see every major general colonel or anything from the army of colombia they have all received training at the uh institute of whatever it is the Instituto de las americas which is now again i'll repeat it it's now called the western hemisphere institute for security Co- cooperation at this place they are taught that communism is the devil and that they need to shoot and all this shit in fact when our Supreme Court was being burnt down. There's a very famous colonel who is now under investigation for human rights violations. But they ask him, what are you doing when he's driving a tank into the Supreme Court? And he says, defending democracy, master. You know, like, so these are the people that got trained there. So uh, that's just to put it into context about what we're dealing with here. And that starts seeping into our police force as well because they are part of military training. So, that is why it's important to the context of what we're living right now. So, uh, all this said, we're now in 1993, 94. Uh, we have a lot of issues in that period with uh, cocaine <laughs> and the drug war. Uh, this leads to probably the worst moment in, in our uh, existence. When, and this is something also interesting that a lot of people marching were born after 2002 so they don't remember it the way we do. makes us sound old. But from about 1994 to 2002, Colombia was in a horrendous state crisis. So FARC had amassed the mass of the drug uh, in Colombia, which also made them the most powerful uh, army in Colombia, and the paramilitaries at the same time. So basically, these two groups started trading off massacres. It's hard to know which one did more. Like, and by massacres, I mean going into towns and slaughtering people for no fucking reason. So both of them. And uh, we get a president who says, who comes from the outside. He's not an insider. He's not from forever. Who says, I'm going to stop this. And his name is Alvaro Uribelez. This is in 2002. 2002. Yeah. So we, we need to accept that Colombia was in a crisis that was so severe at that point that it's hard to understand unless you went through it. Um,
1: but again, I think it's interesting because we've always been in a crisis. <laughs> and there's always going to be the guy that comes and says, I will save you. That wasn't what we were talking about, like this uh, superheroes, uh, caudillos that we call them in, in, in Spanish. And it's like this concept of the guy that is going to come, it's always a guy, oh, a white guy that's going to come and save us. <clears throat> because we're a, a very diverse country, but it's always a white guy that comes
0: and saves us. And uh... but but Macho, we should be fair here. Like we're talking about coming out of 1993, or so leading up to the 1994 elections, we had had our first batch of candidates. Thanks in part to that constitutional convention, we had our first batch of candidates that wasn't like that. It wasn't about elect me and I'll do it. It was like a compromise in that. So we have like Pizarro. We have, uh, obviously, Galán. And we yeah. have uh, the son of Lauriano Gómez, so this super conservative guy, the son of him, uh, Álvaro Gómez Hurtado, who these are people with a state vision. They're not a, a vision of me. It's a vision of state. But yeah. Paulo Escobar and the military forces killed them all. And also in this time, they purged all of the socialist uh, parties, by the way. The state, not the paramilitaries. The state killed all of our socialist candidates.
1: I think, like, in a, I think not necessarily
0: the state, but like allied with this. Yes. Allied, yes. So, uh, so to be fair, when Alvaro Uribe shows up, there was nothing better. Uh, like, we had killed off everyone that, that no, had so we,
1: I, I, I honestly think that we didn't know better. Also. We didn't know like, better. I, I
2: was going to say something similar to that. I was going to say, I mean, and, and maybe this is my memory of being 12 years old, but. This seemed like the reasonable answer to the situation in in many ways and 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 it was not clear that this guy was completely full of himself or or anything other than he seems capable to handle this. Let's go for it.
0: I also should mention, like, because this is gonna be important for when we come back right now to the protest. Colombia had been like on the list of violators of human rights uh since I was born because of the excesses of the state, which it's true, we should have been there. But to the average person like you and me that was living in a chaos. I mean, like this is hard for people to understand. Like I know what a car bomb sounds like. Like we all had friends that got That's kidnapped. Right. Uh, we like the state was so much and it was horrifying. To hear from your European friends in Sweden that, or, or in Switzerland that like, oh, Colombia, the Colombian state is such a horrible country. It's like, you know what? Go fuck yourself because the, the people we're fighting just massacred a whole fucking city. Like, you can shove your humanitarian rights up your ass and let us solve this problem. However, and this is kind of the vacuum that this man that, like you said, we didn't know any better came to fill. He kind of said... I don't give a shit about, you know, any of this. I'm going to solve this. I actually think that you, you
1: said exactly the thing that is happening right now. And it's a very Colombian thing to do. And is try to solve problems with more violence. It's a very Colombian thing.
0: And I, I, I'm not saying I agree with it. But I'm just saying I understand where the voter was. Yeah. At that yeah. time. Because it's different than right now, actually. It's very different. Very different. That's actually what pays into, plays into why the protests happening right now are such a disaster. So yeah. we elect this guy, Alvaro Diureles, uh, who was a political sort of outsider. I mean, he had been governor, but he wasn't like of the established elite. Uh, he was, he did have very macabre uh, ties to the paramilitary groups. It came, we came to find out la- later, um,
2: There were rumors at the time.
0: I think there were rumors. In fact, the United States government had confirmation that this guy had ties to Pablo Escobar. But point is, this guy comes in, uh, secures he had the president before him has secured a gigantic package of aid from the United States for military purposes specifically. Uh, And this guy put it to use. This thing was called the Plan Colombia. Bill Clinton had signed it into law. Uh, Congress had approved. We had basically the largest military budget aided by the United States after oh, Israel. Can I, can,
2: I, can I give some context? I remember when we were in middle school, 2004, 2005, our, our social studies teachers at the school that we went to would tell us, you know, Bogotá is the second biggest U.S. embassy in the world after Baghdad, 2004, 2005. So, so that, I, I think that'll give people context about... It.
0: And it corresponded with how violent our country was in international... Uh, schemes. Yeah. And, and how important this
2: was to the to, to U.S. government.
0: Yes. So in 2002, this guy gets to work. Two things happen on the international stage that change things for Colombia. First of all, one of, one of them is 9-11 because the war on drugs became the war on terror and we took a second second stage. Um, this maybe allowed Colombia to act more barbar- barbarically than it had in the past. So We have this president willing to act barbarically with no international oversight because everyone's looking at 9-11. And this guy basically goes to town. And to his credit, for the first time in many years, uh, creates an armed forces that people felt proud of at first. I'm not saying later, but at first, he really did make them... The this the the FARC particularly, but also ELN, kind of retreat into the jungle, and he goes at it. So what happens? This guy says, "I want to." Oh, I think,
2: especially his early years in the government, it is not clear to me. And maybe I'm being rebuttal, or maybe I'm being apologetic, or maybe I'm being devil's advocate. It's not clear to me that the, that it was absolutely barbaric and it was a huge violation of, of rights. I, I think it. A big chunk of it was the Colombian state reasserting its power over its own territory. And
0: which it hadn't done which for had, 30 uh, years.
2: For, for a long time. And I mean, it's not totally clear to me that it was as sinister as, as I think you put it. Yes. I'm sure that. There-
0: no, I, I think I, the reason I'm saying it's sinister, Jose, and this is why I'm bringing even any of this up, is because to achieve this, the lines between what the police does what the military does, what these different government agencies do have to get diluted. So you need a police that's able to jump in to be the army at any period. You need an army that's willing to jump to be police. You need a, a navy that's willing to be army. You know, like he diffuses that for good reason at first, just because you need to go at it, Right but this creates sort of the problem we're heading into now. Uh, A couple years earlier, by the way, the state polices had been dissolved into a national police force. Uh, The level of corruptions of local police had reached such levels in the 90s, thanks to the drug war, that the only solution the state saw was to create a unified police force uh, handled by central government. So all of this is playing into where we're heading with the protests.
1: There's just just as an, uh, an added value there is like war in Vietnam taught a lot of things to Colombia and in, in how to fight insurgency. And one of the main things that they learned very well was this uh, fake body counting that was so famous in Vietnam. So you have the US government trying to prove the world that the Vietnam War was actually something that made sense and was a success. And also, again, with the thing about let's fight communists uh, in the world and the threat of communism. And there's a lot of things very common in the way that Colombia government managed this guerrilla insurgency in Colombia. But I, in I sense- also,
0: also, in the sense of like Alvaro Uribe comparing it to like Vietnam as a, actually like as a, a time card is an interesting thing to do. Because like Jose said, I think when he started, this dude was really succeeding. Yeah. And the numbers of like casualties in the FARC were something we had never seen. And we were celebrating. I know it sounds fucked up because it's, an, it's a civil war, but we were celebrating it. People were able to travel to parts of Colombia that, that people couldn't before. It, it, it started seeing like we could turn it around. So all this leading, and I think that everything that you're talking about and we will compare it to Vietnam happens starting at this turning point, which is Colombia in the 1991 constitution, uh, in an attempt to decentralize power, had made re-election illegal. Now, this dude seemed like such a savior in in our typical, what we explained, caudillista way. We said, well, we have to keep him on. So a constitutional reform, he had every party with him, every single one. Divergent parties were with him. This is also hard to understand. And they approved. uh, uh, You're... Exaggerating a little bit, but but major parties. I I would say at the point of the first re-election, most people were this with this guy. Uh, But but yeah, it's also because we
1: had majorities in the Congress, not because. Yeah. No, no, that's
0: what I'm saying. is, is
2: there were weak, but there were opposition forces.
0: Yes. Yeah. And and this will come to play because the opposition were starting to sound the alarm about some weird things. So it's a little bit again like the Vietnam War. It all starts great some people start reporting some weird shit but by an overwhelming majority the, con- the constitution gets uh amended so that there can be re-election with the clear understanding that this guy's gonna win a- at this point every major party backs him as a candidate uh he wins um overwhelmingly and then in stated in all his glory and power weird things start becoming weirder kind of like what you're talking about with vietnam uh, obviously when you're leading a successful war every day gets less dead if you're winning he didn't like this he wanted it to look like he was winning at the same levels so here comes the first problem which is what Modi was talking about in colombia we call them false positives which is a horrible fucking name what they are called is extrajudicial killings it is when the government kills its own innocent people. So what happened was, alvar Uribe, in a very Vietnam fashion, this happened literally in Vietnam, said, I want results. I want this many people dead or captured every month. What happens, there's less and less guerrilla every year. So the soldiers start doing really fucked up things to meet their numbers. They start kidnapping nationals. Random people from Colombia dressing them up as guerrilla members and killing them. Uh, so you can imagine what kind of human rights violation that is.
1: And of course, just to highlight, they're not kidnapping people in the high levels of society of Bogota. They're kidnapping people in the rural areas where nobody gives a fuck if they're missing. Uh, people with disabilities. Uh, it's, it's a really complicated situation in general.
0: And a lot. The numbers into the 7,000 Yes. Uh, confirmed. Uh, the number rumored is into the 18,000.
1: And that's, that's another topic that I guess we will talk about a little bit, and it's numbers in Colombia never add up. <laughs> you never have like a, a good way of really understanding what happened
0: because numbers never add up. And this is important for the protests because it's something yeah. we got used to. Because it's normal in a war for numbers not to add up. It's messy. Like you can't go in there and count things in the middle of a war. So we got used to it. We got used to hearing the official number and kind of saying, sure, we'll go with that. We never had agencies that could control whether the official numbers were correct. Um, so anyway, he has his second term. Things get weirder and weirder. Again, this guy from M19 that we mentioned before, Gustavo Petro, leads a very heroic charge in the Senate to... uh oppose, to oppose and investigate Alvaro Uribe's government. The numbers he comes up with are scary. So here's where we end up with the 7,000 extrajudicial killings, his links with paramilitary groups, which he had, by the way, absolved. He had like a peace treaty with the paramilitary groups where he just absolved them. And, and when they started, uh, the heads of these paramilitary groups started going to court to tell the truth, he had them extradited. So they wouldn't tell the truth. So this guy's a dark character. Now, he is still very popular at this point. So we're talking about like 2008, eight, nine. Very popular man. He says, I'm going to go for re-election again. The Constitution doesn't allow it, but I'm just going to do the same thing. Now, at this point, he has less allies. No? I honestly, I honestly think like he's the, he's the closest figure to Emperor Palpatine that there is. Like, yes, ever. no, it's true. He's like awesome. a crazy Machiavelli. No, he's like Putin. <laughs> he's like the Latin, Latin America mm, Vladimir Putin. That's how I've always seen him. So this guy, his popularity is not waning with the people, but he has less allies in Congress and in the Senate. And he says, I'm going to pull the same thing, and I want the Constitution amended again so I can go for a third term. Now, mind you, next door, Hugo Chavez is doing the same thing. So in a huge triumph to Colombia, this guy sets up a thing thinking the people will approve of it. If the Congress won't approve of it, then the people will. And what happened? <laughs> I think
1: there's a very important topic that we missed, and maybe Jose can help us explain it, and it's the, the petroleum prices boom in, in their terms.
2: I mean, yeah, so, so during, during the 2000s, there, there, there was the, the commodity super cycle, and, and so commodity prices were high around the world. And so this was around the time where so Colombia grew a lot in, 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 in economic terms and per capita terms. But I mean, the same thing was happening in Brazil, Argentina, Kind of, this was all around the world, even even into the 2008 finan- great financial crisis.
0: And also, we, we have to be honest, the, the new safety that was created by this kind of uh, militaristic government also encouraged multinational companies to invest in Colombia, including the sale of major companies like Avianca and uh, Bavaria, which created a sense of, of tremendous economic... Uh...
2: I mean, not even a sense. It, it, it was real economic growth, I think. Higher than 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 we had seen, seen
1: historically. So so it- I I think he, he just was very smart in trying to give him himself like the credit, which really was just like a coincidence in many ways. Yes,
0: yeah. he did control power in an incredible way. Uh, we got to admit that guy's charismatic and scary, and he had a uh, everyone by the balls. He was like our Charles the You know, he was like the Holy Roman Emperor. Everyone was afraid of him. So uh, at any rate. By this point, he tries to go for re-election again and the people aren't buying it. In a huge uh, success, I think, for democracy, they say, we love you, bro, but no thank you. Like, we, like we're not going to do it. Even his supporters were like, dude, this is fucked. Like, constitutionally speaking, you can't just amend the constitution to stay here forever. So he appoints a successor uh, by finger, his minister of defense, who does come oh, from the traditional... I, I recently read a review somewhere
2: mm-hmm. that makes it sound like, like it was more of a reluctant appointment. Selection. Selection than, 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 than I think we were led to believe at the time.
0: Uh, okay, but let's say reluctantly or not, he appoints a successor who was the Minister of Defense. So, so who for does people, come. It was very clear who his candidate was in that election. Yes, yes absolutely. Yes. And and he comes from, he's like the Kennedy of, he's one of the Kennedys of Colombia. Basically, there had been two former presidents from that lineage. They handled the media. They both owned the major newspapers in Colombia, but also had been in power since God knows when. Um, but this is a guy that's very interesting because he was he was selected to be this guy's successor, but it became very clear within a month of his government that he was not going to be anyone's puppet. But can, can I add something there? I think,
2: so I actually found it kind of scary that all major political parties coalesced around him. At, right, after, oh,
0: But that's what they did with Uribe. Like, that's the thing. But, but it,
2: I, I thought in this case it was even weirder because there were parties that had been very vocally opposed to Uribe that joined the, the coalition.
0: Yes. At, I think that that, Jose, to be honest, I think that that was the compromise that the, uh, the opposition party saw. Like, we'd rather have you than the destruction of our constitution. Maybe, or maybe, maybe they read it
2: better than me, and, they, and I think where you were going was this guy was turned out to have a more centrist, independent, independent yes. ideology, and, and, and they were more... They were more amenable to that than than, so.
0: So, this guy's name is Juan Manuel Santos. Uh, He uh, is a very polarizing figure in our country for reasons that we'll get into. But, in I will give my personal bias here. Uh, Obviously, my my dad worked for his government, but I thought he was the model of a vision, vision, modern visionary politician that Colombia needed and that. 40 years from now if Colombia survives we will look back and think that's the statesman uh we'd never realized was so good. He calmed uh the international community. He he said I'm not crazy. We can all talk again. Let's calm down. He even calmed things with Venezuela, which by the way he was criticized for, but he was like, look, that dude's crazy. I don't want to deal with him. And then he de- he continued to deal like deadly blows to the Guerrillas, until they kind of looked so debilitated that he did the thing that nobody expected, and he opened a peace agreement. He said, "I will sit with you and negotiate a peace." And we had come out in 1998 to a peace agreement that had ended very poorly. So in in the Colombian memory, this is not something that was going to work. This dude made it work, and uh, he got reelected. And by the time he finished with this in 2014, there was a peace agreement that was, I mean, people criticize it a lot because Colombian people are ridiculous. But on international levels, this agreement is going to be the model for every agreement moving forward internationally to disarm a guerrilla. Uh, it's a huge success. Now, what that the reason we're bringing this up is because it really polarized the country. I mean, when they voted for the agreement, it didn't pass. The people of Colombia didn't want the agreement, not because they had read it, but because they, there was such hatred. To I should add this. This was an extremely
2: divisive election. This was this was kind of like yes. Brexit, which passed fifty-one to forty-nine. This was like this didn't pass with a fifty and a half percent to forty-nine and a half, or I mean, I, though, I'm making up the numbers, but it but it was that sort of margin.
1: Yes. It, it also started like this tendency, like <clears throat> this global tendency of like fake news in things. Not like, for example. Uh if you vote yes, we will give part of the power to Venezuela. Right?
0: If you so vote yes, happy. there there's things about gay marriage.
1: Yeah, we will force <laughs> your children to be gay. Like
0: you're <laughs> me. <laughs> so, so yeah, to, to put it in context,
2: this election was on October 2nd, 2016, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh so June 23rd of 2016 was the Brexit vote. Same sort of electoral tactics. A month later, in November 2016, Donald Trump got elected to the presidency. We all know the same, similar electoral
0: Okay, so uh, uh, this guy's negotiating a peace agreement. Uh, It gets approved. It's it's unpopular. It's popular. Very divided. I mean, the margin of error was something insane. Can I interject here? So I
2: agreed with the peace agreement. I voted with the peace agreement. But I think the aftermath of the referendum was, I want to use the word shady, because it was like, okay, the people didn't vote for this, so we're going to put it through Congress.
0: Yeah, but okay. So this I would compare this to like Brexit, so people understand. Like they put it up for a referendum. It didn't pass because of all the disinformation. And then the president had two choices. So Juan Manuel Santos had two choices. He could repeal the agreement, which had taken many years to build, or he could do what he did. He called... The opposition, he called his, the former president, and he said, what is it that you people disagree with? Let's sit down. You can salvage this. And out of, I think it was like 30 points that the opposition disagreed with, 29 were agreed upon. So it is shady that then that agreement went to Congress instead of back to a referendum. I agree with you. But on the other hand, I want to think about like the historic... A moment that was being lived, the emergency that we were in, and also the byproduct that happened afterwards. I think Juan Manuel Santos's miscalculation was to send this to a referendum in the first place. He should have just sent it to Congress, get it signed.
1: I think it was borderline arrogance. Like he thought that he, yeah. he was so sure about it.
0: Like he was like, "I'm, I'm, I'm, I'm so good at this." I'm, like, who's going to say no? Who's going to say exactly. no? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I would also like to say Juan Manuel Santos made a crucial thing of why this agreement is so good. That is also probably why it didn't pass. This agreement was not negotiated by the important politi- political figures of Colombia. It was not negotiated by Petro or by Uribe or even by Juan Manuel Santos. This agreement was negotiated by kind of our most brilliant older generation of, of uh, second-tier politicians. So you have like Humberto Lacalle who had lived some of the most important things in Colombian history. You have people like this that were not trying to be presidents. I mean, Humberto tried later, but uh, he was not doing it to be the president of Colombia. And so the negotiation came straight from like a human rights... A other agreement. I mean, it was modeled after things from Ireland, and after things from Rwanda, and after things from South Africa. And so it was It was not built to help somebody get elected afterwards. So that's part of the brilliance, but it's also what created the anger because Albaro Uribe felt like he should have been included, and he should have had the protagonist role, and uh, all this other shit. It's part of the reason that they tried to sink it. Now, in the meantime, just to make it clear, Alvaro Urielis, when the peace talks had been announced, so this is the former president, who's kind of like Palpatine, like Mauricio said, this guy had gotten himself elected to the Senate and largely concentrated all the powers in the Senate. This is unheard of in Colombian history that a former president would try to reenter politics uh, into a lower chamber of government. So, um. Here we are, the peace agreement gets shoved down people's throats. I think ultimately...
2: I I would characterize it like that. I I think that's ultimately how it felt.
0: It's how it felt, but I would also say ultimately a huge triumph we should all be happy about. uh, Policy
2: standpoint, I agree. Uh,
0: But I, I understand people's distrust at that point. Now then, this is followed closely by a presidential election. Two things happened before Juan Manuel Santos leaves power that are kind of master strokes of his again. I really am a fan of his in some ways. The master stroke he did was end uh, re-election again. That's one. And two, fuck right off. That That dude did not name a successor. That dude did not stay for an extra day. He did everything the opposite of what his predecessor did. He just disappeared into the mist and and that, that was that. Um, now, here we end up with an election that I don't know who, if Maocha wants to talk about, but again, one of the most contentious things in, in recent Colombian history I can think of. So, we, but again, to be in context, we had passed four elections at this point that had been like obvious who was going to be the candidate. You know, like basically everyone was unified in some ways. So.
1: So so basically, uh, Palpatine gets this uh, snow <laughs> kind of figure, which, uh, like, I don't know if you saw the new Star Wars movies they suck as a huge Star Wars fan. Yeah,
0: they're terrible <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. and it, it's it's kind of the same thing of Colombia. The, the new version of Colombia really sucks. it's terrible. Mm-hmm. It's like this uh, not like in, in, in this effort of let's let's have somebody that we can control in the government. Uh, let's choose just whoever we want to. And they just chose the guy that seemed less dangerous
2: in general. They just chose. Can I I give a a little bit of a glimmer of hope there? In the first round of the 2018 elections, so it ended up being the right-wing party against the left-wing party. But, this, but it, the, the first round was pretty much evenly split between the two of them and the centrist guy. Uh,
0: and and, and so I think that's something that we had not seen before. And- no, and it's actually super, super important. So we should mention that this peace agreement, what it did for Colombia, was we had spent from 1950s to 2014 talking about law and order and a war. And at that point, nobody cared about anything else. There was no time to think about anything else. This was the first election where you can talk about other possibilities because the largest guerrilla group had disarmed. And so what you got was two sides of a rhetoric. You got for the first time candidates that were talking about, like investing in social things, investing in education, talking about corruption, things that plagued Colombia, but that had taken a second seat to uh, the military conflict. But then on the other side, you had uh, Palpatine, so Uribe's successor, who was totally obviously understood as a puppet, stoking the fire of a rhetoric that was on its way out. So he was like, if you don't elect me, violence is going to come back. This peace agreement is a farce. They actually kept weapons, and they're going to use them against the people. This is all a ploy for the communists to take over government, like all this stuff. So, flaming and, uh, and flaming. Like
1: 30 years after the fall of the, of the Soviet yes. Union, you, we still have this rhetoric of communism is in our mists. Mm-hmm. And we need to be careful. We yes. don't have ARC anymore, but we have Venezuela. Yes. And it's like, wow, we're going to be like the new Venezuela if we vote for left. Yes. And that's a very strong
0: rhetoric in, in the... And what the, hosts it? Yeah, and what Jose said, there was like a lot of candidates people liked that couldn't amass enough votes. So, Mm. in general, the center-left had more votes. Yeah. But it was split among eight candidates. And the guy who got the most votes was also the extreme-left, who, you know, this guy, Gustavo Petro, who talks in a way also like the cold war like oh the people this the people that it's like dude we you know the, so both speeches that ended up in government there was one that scared a whole lot of the centrists and they were equally scared by the super right wing but they knew what the right wing looked like cuz we had had it for 16 years and and by the way just i just need to say this gustavo petro is also a very
1: dangerous character in 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 colombia and and it, he's dangerous not because of his left wing ideology but because of his extremely populist ideas. So he's the type of guy that reads, I don't know, donut economics. And now he starts like believing himself as this huge economist and thinking that he's a fucking genius and telling people what to do and that we should have like a four day week. And then, and then that our economy should be completely subsidized and everything. He's a complete irresponsible figure in, in Colombian politics. And I think it's important to stand it out because uh, we are now driven with two spheres of politics in which we have complete two irresponsible politicians managing the the, the okay. both sectors,
0: and, and we're back to our normal way of voting out of fear in Colombia mm-hmm. so yeah. I, I would say um why does this matter because the guy who wins is what the former guy wa- wasn't he is like Juan Manuel Santos, the guy who Uribe had selected as his as his uh, you know as his uh, successor, uh, he thought would be his puppet to some degree, and he really wasn't. But this new guy, and why wasn't he? Because Juan Manuel Santos is hyper connected. He had been minister of eight like eight governments. He had his own shit. That dude had his own understanding of government. It didn't depend on this other guy. So who did they select this time? A guy who had no experience in government. So they selected a dude who up until this point, his most famous thing was being in a session of Congress where, or of the Senate where the former president stole his chips. And this had become a viral video. That's the only reason we knew who this guy was, Ivan Duque. And this guy had no political allies. No un- he had never ran a ministry. He had never run a Senate uh, seat except that one time. He was a complete nobody what does this mean he's the perfect in ways he's the perfect puppet because he's alone if he's abandoned uh, if you abandoned the former guy juan manuel santos that dude's a tiger he's gonna find his way he knows everybody if you abandon this little lamb he's fucked so he can't be abandoned congratulations you made it to the end of part two go on to part three if you would like uh, where we discuss kind of where this is all going and where it has led in these protests and why they are so worrying to Colombians. This was, as you will notice by now, not about a tax reform. And so I I encourage you to listen to part three, which will really bring it all home regarding what Colombia is facing now as we approach elections in about a year. Take care.